Today's episode of Home Row is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word, and it also inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for serious study or for sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. Hey, everybody, before we get into today's show, just a quick little announcement that I'm really excited about. Uh, My new book, Humble Calvinism, If I Know the Five Points But Have Not Love, just released. It's now available on Amazon, CBD, and wherever books are sold, so you can go and snag that, and I hope it's a a blessing to you. Um, I thought it would be a shame if I didn't let you loyal listeners know that your host of a show on writing has released his book. And maybe in future episodes, I'll, I'll talk about that, that process of, of writing that as well. But want to let you know, Humble Calvinism, if I know the five points but have not love, is now available. Let's get on to today's show. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Home Row. I'm your host, Jeff Metters, and it's great to uh, to be with you again. And I, I love kind of the uh, new, it's not a new emphasis, but a a new addition to the show is is when writers have new books coming out, it's the it's a perfect time to to get a hold of them, say, hey, let's talk about your book since obviously it's fresh on your mind. Let's talk about your writing and how you how you went through this project because it's all new. It's all fresh, even though you wrote it probably a year ago. But that's the experience of all writers. We got to talk about our books now, and especially I want to talk about books that I think are helpful and and books that are adding to the conversation. Uh, not only amongst writers, but among Christians and thinkers and in the culture. And so today I'm so excited to have the author of the new book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin, on the show today. Rebecca, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I'm doing really well. I have a little bit of a of a cold right now, and so I sound way more nasally <laughs> husky. Than, yeah, than than usual, but it's okay. And uh, I'm here in Houston, which is um, in the south part of Texas, over there near the Gulf Coast. And mm-hmm. it's always humid, and it's really kind of dreary today. Um, I imagine I've never been to London, but when I've seen the movies. With London, or I've, when I've watched The Crown, it looks like London outside. Well, that's a beautiful thing to experience. London is, is a beautiful place. So if you're seeing it out of your window, you should be happy, man. <laughs> so, audience, as you can tell, Rebecca is not from Texas. Um, I'm not. Like I am. So, Rebecca, for the listeners out there who don't know who you are, why don't you just tell them a little bit about yourself, um, your job, and your family, and, and whatever else you, you'd like to say? So I come from the UK. I have lived in America for the last 10 years, thanks to marrying a guy from Oklahoma. And I often tell people it's really hard to find a good evangelical man in England. So sometimes we have to export. Uh, (laughs) Brian and I met when we were both in grad school. So I did my undergrad, master's and PhD in English literature at Cambridge University and then met Brian right at the tail end of that. He's an engineer. He was doing different stuff uh, just as I was going to seminary. Spent three years in seminary with the desire to be in some kind of evangelistic, apologetics type ministry that would connect up uh, academic questions with 
real gospel issues in the hearts and minds of of people of all sorts. Didn't have the clearest vision of what that would look like, but fortunately God tends to have a clearer vision for us than we have for ourselves. So moved over to America 10 years ago and started working for a ministry called the Veritas Forum, which some of your folks may have heard of. Um, And I was particularly engaged there working with Christian professors at leading secular universities and helping them to develop their public witness more in various ways, whether it was speaking at university events hosted by Veritas or writing articles or just growing in their ability to integrate the incredible things they were doing through their academic work with their public witness for Jesus. And in the course of that process, I just felt like I was discovering this informational gap between what some of the top Christian thinkers in the world were saying about everything from physics to philosophy to psychology, and what Christians on the ground and non-Christians on the ground thought about these things or knew about these things. So I think part of the drive for me to write this book was actually to to try and close that information gap and to mm. make some of those resources available, uh, apply to particular questions that might come up with non-Christian friends, but just just sort of um, reveal the riches that God has given us through yeah. the thousands of Christian professors at leading secular universities. Um, yeah, and along the way, I've had three kids. My youngest is eight months. My oldest is nearly nine. So it's been a crazy ride. Oh, fun. Yeah, I have two kids. My, my oldest is 10 and my son is five mm. and been married 12 years now. And yeah, it's been a wild, fun ride. Yeah. Now, I know, so you live, uh, do you live in New England? I do. I live in what I call New Cambridge, <laughs> what you Americans call Cambridge. Perfect. Yeah, we're in East Cambridge near MIT. Do you know many other uh, Englanders who've left England and left the UK and now live in New England? Were you that tired of old England that New England was just oh. ready for the upgrade? Oh, gosh, I, I hate to tell you this. I was the, the, the most reluctant immigrant to this country that America has ever, has ever experienced. <laughs> uh, I, partly because I loved the UK where I came from and partly because just the, the gospel needs in England are, are massive. Yeah. And I felt like, Lord, why are you having me move to a country which frankly has more resources in terms of gospel ministry, a higher proportion of Christians, et cetera, et cetera, you know, leaving my, my spiritually desolate homeland <laughs> where I was very much feeling like I wanted to put my hand to the plow. Uh, I think one of the the most thrilling things for me right now, actually, is just the opportunity to, in some ways, contribute to conversations back in the UK. But um, no, I've I've enjoyed living here the last ten years, but it was a wrench. Yeah, when, what do you think about American food? I always, I always love to ask people from other <laughs> countries what they think about American food. I mean, I have my own thoughts about English food, though I've never had it in England. Uh, I've had it at you know different restaurants and stuff. But what do you think about American food? So here's the thing. I will listen to French people talking junk about English food. When Americans want to criticize <laughs> English food, I'm like, seriously? Yeah. You guys brought to us McDonald's. That's right. Hey, you know, um, McDonald's is pretty good. In, in, mm, a, in a pinch. It's not yeah, good on can, a... Yeah. We can agree to disagree on that. I think so. Just as in England, I would have to ask you, what do you mean by English food? I think I'd have the same question in America. Because in, in England, curry is essentially our national dish. People eat more curry than almost anything else. And that is because of a long history of, of British Indians. Right. Um, so 
what is English food? There are things like roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, which are in some ways kind of classic English, I don't know, sort of white heritage English food, I guess yeah. you could call it. But we actually benefit from uh, an incredibly diverse population in England at many levels, including at the level of cuisine. And I think in America, probably the best American food is is American um, with strong cultural ties yeah, to another place. <laughs> absolutely. And you know, I just, you know, we think about McDonald's. We had, had it last night. My daughter's soccer practice went so long and we didn't, <laughs> I didn't have time. It was like, we're not going to have time to come home and make dinner. So we're going to McDonald's and I, I do think McDonald's is not good. But <laughs> when you find the fry at the bottom of the bag that mm. was lost, like a treasure mm. hidden in a field, I mean, mm -hmm. it is, that fry is so good. <laughs> But like the hamburger, right, is like a German, I think it's a German kind of invention, or the Earl of Sandwich and the, or some, I don't know, all this kind of dorky food <laughs> right. stuff. But the French fries, those are from uh, Belgium, uh, pizzas, Italian-ish. Yeah, you call them French fries for whatever reason. Yeah, y'all call them chips? Yeah. We call them chips. In I, I know, I, like, I, yeah. I do like that better. I have started calling our vacations uh, holidays. I, oh, I, good. I think that is the, one of the coolest things in British culture. Welcome uh, to the dark side. Yeah. So I, I even dropped it in a sermon recently. I said, I, you know, I was on holiday with my family and uh, blah, 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 blah. And people were like, what? There wasn't a holiday recently. Like, where where, where did they go? <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I love it. But okay. So now what, what's something that you do for fun that maybe listeners uh, would, would be surprised to, to learn? Oh, goodness. That is a terrifying question. Like, are you a rock climber on the weekends? Uh, no, my husband was a rock climber for a long time. The thing with me... James, I don't know if you've done the Enneagram deal, uh, which I, I'm not an Enneagram enthusiast in many ways, but okay. I think those sorts of things start interesting conversations. So I'm an Enneagram 2, which basically means that I want to love and be loved. And the way this translates for me is that in general, I don't much mind where I am or even to some extent what I'm doing, I mind who I'm with. Mm. So if I'm with somebody I delight in, I could be sitting in a parking lot eating mcdonald's french fries oh, wow. <laughs> and i could be happier there than if i was sitting in some fancy restaurant eating filet mignon with someone i found less interesting oh absolutely so yeah. what do i do for fun is mostly talk with people i like yeah cool i don't know if that's surprising no <laughs> but, no i think it's a well it's a surprising not surprising that it's true but a, a nice surprising take on the question I tell you what is surprising though. Every morning, I love taking baths. I don't believe in showers. It's a weird American thing, showers. We it, we Brits take baths. <laughs> and my way of connecting with my homeland every day is listening to a 12-minute radio program that is the longest-running soap opera in the world. Do you, does the word soap opera mean something here? Yeah, yeah. It does. yeah well, okay. it's a, yeah TV shows that are really schmaltzy and weird and bad acting and weird romantic stories well they may or may not be bad acting and schmaltzy but they are a kind of ongoing saga of some sort about you, you revisit the same people again and again yes um, yeah american soap operas i don't think it's going to be the same yeah so the longest running soap opera in the world is a british one called the archers and it was originally designed to propagate new ideas about farming in rural communities oh, so it's like oh let's make a drama about farmers and then as people listen they can go, say oh yes maybe we could do that with our cows too wow. So this is a staple of British culture. I'm, I don't know what the American equivalent is, but every day 
in the morning, I spend 12 minutes listening to the archers and learning about farming and the these sort of relationships between fictional farmers. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, the soap operas in the United States, um, they are about who's sleeping with who, who's who got murdered, who is uh, rich and famous and all... Yeah. Oh yeah, all of that happens in the archers, but you so, also have so, cows and yeah, pigs no cows, and no <laughs> aquaponics. Yeah, there's definitely which is the there's new edu- thing. Yeah. yeah, there's education happening in the archers, mm-hmm. not Indeed. not in uh, American soap operas. <laughs> well, how, Rebecca, how did you become a writer? Um, you know, I know that some people they dream of it as as a young as a young kid. And they my my daughter is now writing her first a short story about her and her mm. friends um, trying to Jafar is taking over Disney world, the the <laughs> villain from Aladdin and they're on a mm-hmm. mission to defeat Jafar and she's reading it out loud. I'm like, man, this is really cool. Um, so I wonder like, I always ask my guests, how did you become a writer? Mm. I have always loved words. I loved reading as a child. My my father would read to me every night a bedtime story. I'm, I'm right now reading The Lord of the Rings to my elder daughter, which is so special to me because I vividly remember my dad reading it to me. And so I've always had an intimate relationship with with words, both in conversation. I'll, I have an alarmingly good memory for conversations I've had with people, but also written words in various forms. I, I've loved poetry for as long as I can remember. And I managed to spend seven years in university studying words. So that is a big piece of how I'm now somebody who is creating things with words, I suppose. I used to, I mean, I've entered for a few poetry competitions once upon a time thing and um, always enjoyed that. I think if you had asked me 10 years ago, what did I think was maybe my call it would have been to speaking rather than writing. Mm. And actually, honestly, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would also have said, I think it's speaking because I've always loved working with an audience. I, I did a bunch of public speaking competitively, etc., in high school. And I did stand up comedy in college. It's, just, it's always something that I've, oh, wow. that I've done. Uh, and to some extent, one of the motivations for writing this book is a friend said, Hey, if you, you know, if you want to do speaking, you probably should, you, you need to write a book because nobody's nobody's going to listen to what you have to say if you're not writing a book. And I was like, you know, I really actually independently also want to write a book. I found that I enjoy the experience of writing the book much more than I expected to. I didn't think I wouldn't like it, but I found it oddly therapeutic. Huh. Not not in a I'm sitting you know, disclosing all of my secret thoughts necessarily, although t- at times in the book I do, but. I felt like it was a, a way to harness um, my intellectual and emotional energies in, in good ways. Uh, I sometimes joke with friends that I, I feel like I have a fire hydrant's worth of intellectual and emotional energy. And if it's directed well, that's great. And if it's not directed well, you know, imagine a fire hydrant without a fire to put out. It's kind of, right. a, kind of a mess. So it, it, was, it was really wonderful to have this book to come to with thoughts and feelings and all the things um and the reality of having to write it really quickly which I did 
also made it a different kind of experience that I appreciated. Don't know if that fully answers your question, but maybe some some of it. Yeah, well, I, I definitely, you definitely did. I just how I think there's the pieces of encouragement um, from friends and the, kind of the desire to work with words. So there is kind of like this, you know, the God given gifts mm-hmm. and talents and and wiring that that He gives us, and then I think community also forming us because writers, you know, we don't become we don't become writers in isolation. Um, yeah, and so two thoughts I have on that as well. One is, it's very easy if you're someone who's spent a lot of time reading beautiful literature. It is very easy to be utterly crippled by the desire for perfection, and to feel like anything you write isn't going to be good enough, and you don't want to put it out in the world until it's good enough. And you kind of imagine right. all the voices telling you what's wrong with it, and your own voice telling you what's wrong with it. And I was recently talking with a friend who has extraordinary potential to write, but isn't quite yet writing because she's hamstrung by all these things. And I said to her, you need to write a few things, just a few articles, whatnot, just to get out into the world and to acclimatize yourself to the fact that you will be writing things that are not perfect, that you may even be kind of basically ashamed of, but you need to get them out there. And your standard shouldn't be, is this perfect? Is this brilliant? Is this amazing? It should be, is this helpful? And if it meets that standard, then it's probably worth putting out there. I definitely had to go through that process of starting to write some things and thinking, huh, I know all the things that are wrong with this right now. I don't know immediately (laughs) how to fix them. And so, you know, I'm just going to kind of put them out there and trust the Lord with the results. And I think for me writing this book, the, the way that the stars aligned meant that I ended up having to write it essentially in four months while pregnant and working, only having a few hours a day to devote to it. And I don't know if you've if you've seen the musical Hamilton or or if you've I, I heard haven't. the soundtrack. Yeah, so this is a brilliant song in Hamilton with the refrain that goes, uh, "Why do you write like you're running out of time? Write damn night like you're running out of time." Yeah, it's kind of this like question to Hamilton. And I felt like I was literally writing like I was running out of time. There was all the, there's a need <laughs> to just sit down. I didn't have time to agonize over every sentence. It was sit down, vomit it out. And be okay with the fact that it's not this beautiful thing that maybe it could possibly be if you spent the next 10 years crafting it. We're kind of running out of time here. Uh, And I I feel, I mean, that was somewhat an accident of, of my own process, publishing process. But I think there's also an element of truth to it that if we, if we recognize the urgency of the gospel, we are in fact running out of time. Mm for our friends and for um, others who we may not have met yet who don't know Jesus. And if there's anything we can do to further the cause of the gospel uh, under God's sovereignty, now is the time. And I think just the last observation on that, you mentioned the need for community. And and I've already mentioned that I'm someone who basically the community is sort of deep in my essence. So uh, a very close friend who is also writing and we typically on, on a morning would text each other and say, hey, what are you working today? How are you feeling about it? Bat some ideas around and just get that, that activation energy to then sit down and write. And it's been incredibly valuable to me to have what I'd call like a running mate in the process, because as a, as a feeling extrovert, just putting me in a room by myself and saying, write stuff now. It doesn't work. I need I need some sort of relational input to uh, to spark the the thoughts and to get me moving. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That's and, and helpful. And that rings so true. I, I think to my own experience of mm. when, you, when I am writing and wrestling with, it can even be just a blog post or something mm-hmm. I, I need to turn in for the gospel coalition or whatever. Yeah. And just going, Oh, this is not good. I, I'm just, I got my here back. This stinks. Like, what were you thinking? Yeah. Um, yeah. But then you know, the times I, I just got to get it out there and yeah. see what they say back. And then yeah. you hear back, Hey, that's really good. Thanks. Well, I think we, well, I, I'll speak for myself. I need one or two close friends whose judgment I value to where I can send them something and say, this is probably terrible, horrible, no good, very bad. What do you think? And they will tell me, I think this is good or eh, yeah, probably you've misjudged that. Try again. And just to have that to get, get ourselves over our own inner critic to where we can actually share it. Even, even with a editor, um, I feel often I kind of need that first step of saying, Oh, is this, is this as bad as I feel like it might be? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love working with editors so much. Mm-hmm. They just a good, a good editor, one that you can trust. Um, yeah. and, that, and that gets you and doesn't want to take over the piece is uh, so helpful yeah. And, yeah. And, and shaping us. Now, mm-hmm. now the, your, your new book and your first book, right? That's right. Now, how, how did the idea come about? I know you have obviously a history and a and passion for evangelism and apologetics. And so how did the idea for confronting Christianity, um, the subtitle, you know, 12, 12 questions facing the largest religion in, in the world, mm-hmm. or is, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to butcher the, yeah, that's it for the world's largest religion. <laughs> 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did that idea uh, come about? So I've already told you one stream that flowed into the book, which is the, the time with Christian professors and feeling like on a number of the sorts of questions that would typically come up with, with non-believers that I had access to some insights, you know, not my own, but from some of the, the best brains that we have in, in the church. So it was that stream. The other stream was, uh, what was it, five or six years ago when gay marriage was legalized in America. Yeah. And I, I felt a profound sense of, um, what's the right word? sorrow at the fact that I felt like the church in general was doing a really poor job of rep- of representing orthodox Christian sexual ethics. And this grieved me in, in a couple of ways. One, it grieved me to see people uh, basically selling out on what the Bible says on this this question. Uh, often often motivated, I think, by by empathy and by a recognition that maybe, the attitudes that they'd grown up with were genuinely homophobic, i.e. living in fear and distrust and um, disparagement of, of same-sex attracted people. But then in this process of repenting of that, actually um, becoming you know, people who, who weren't willing to listen to what is you know, painfully clear from the scriptures, it seems to me. So on the one hand, we sort of had the um, folks within the church, either themselves same-sex attracted or, or kind of straight allies as it were um moving away from christian orthodoxy on this on this question on the other hand we had folks who frankly probably weren't ready and willing to repent of their actual homophobia who were doubling down on the kind of culture warsy um you know uphold, upholding orthodox christian sexual ethics in one sense of saying marriage is between one man and one woman and sex belongs only in, in marriage 
but actually not doing so in a way that was genuinely empathetic and that uh, was in any sense sort of attractive. And for me, I had, I've been romantically attracted to women since childhood. So it was a big part of my own experience. And I felt like it was a piece of, of maybe what I was called to, to serve the Lord with, but I didn't know how really. <laughs> and as a you know, friend commented at the time, my, my brain was probably three miles ahead of my heart at that point. Um, it wasn't something that I talked to many people about. It was, you know, it's certainly something that I needed to do some, you know, deep work with the Lord on uh, myself before coming and <laughs> saying, saying anything meaningful or helpful to anybody else. So that was another stream that ran into this book. And I think for me is the, in some ways, the most scary part of, of this book, um, because I'm, I'm saying things here that I, a few years ago, would not have said to most of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. But I think that, I think it's time to, to say them. Yeah, you, you address some of the, uh, obviously some of the really personal parts of your life. And I, you know, as you read, audience, as you read her book, you'll notice she brings certain things up, especially in the introduction, then you go and see the footnotes, which I love that there are footnotes and not in notes. This is the kind of book that needs footnotes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you say, yeah, we're going to talk more about this in chapter seven or or, or later on, we'll, we'll address more of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've started reading it and I've really, really enjoyed um, your approach and your your take on on all these issues. And I've been so struck by by one aspect of it that we'll talk more about later, just how much research you've done. And and I'd love to, to well, I'll ask again later so I don't forget about how you manage all that mm-hmm. research. That's one question I get from people is like, how do you mm-hmm. manage the footnotes and your research and everything <laughs> you've accumulated over the years? But but before we do that, you know, as you were writing this book, um, what, what were your habits like? Now, I think you said you only had four months to, to finish or to do it. Yeah, I got the contract from Crossway in February, uh, and they wanted it by the 1st of June. Uh, so I, I did a full, I, I submitted a full draft then. They then said that they weren't actually going to start the editing process until August, which it, it was funny to me to realize, oh, I suspect that many publishers work with authors who say they will deliver a manuscript at a certain date. And then don't, and so they right. they built in that cushion time. Yeah, and I'm I'm not an organised person in general, but I do take deadlines quite seriously. So I had actually moved heaven and earth in my own little world to to make that first deadline, and I did. But then I, I essentially took June off, and then did a little bit more work in July, and I gave the final manuscript in the day before I went into labour with my my son. Oh, man. That's amazing. <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so what were your writing habits like during the during the process? Were you every day knocking out, you know, a thousand, two thousand words? I mean, because this is not a short book either. I think it's what, like two hundred and forty pages or or something like that. Yeah, um, two hundred and twenty. The acknowledgments apparently come on page two hundred twenty-five. Okay, so. there we go. Yeah, yep, two hundred twenty-five. Um, what were my habits like? I think, like I say, it was. This is an odd comparison to make, but bear with me. <laughs> it's almost like having an affair uh thankfully not in a way that's in any way sinful or compromising to my marriage but (laughs) good i because it was having to be done in the midst of a lot of things because it was a lot of things that I, i deeply care about and because i was doing this mixture of 
self-disclosure and discovery of of the other uh, through writing about a lot of other people's stories and a lot of research. There were the things that I was learning in the process, but it was it wasn't hard for me to sit down and write. I, know, I have some friends who would say when they need to write, they sit down and they think, oh, maybe I'll clean the bathroom first or maybe I'll go and I don't have that. I actually, getting me to clean the bathroom is like pulling teeth. <laughs> so, like, give me writing every time. And I think because I was having to do it quickly and because I wasn't giving myself any constraints of saying this has to be perfect, I'm just going to vomit it out it meant that I was able to just kind of run with it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I wrote, my mum came to visit for a week uh, when I was uh, most of the way through the pregnancy. And so I was able to just lie on the couch and write. And she took care of my girls um, when they were back home from school most afternoons. And I think I wrote like, I don't know, three or four chapters, the bulk of three or four chapters in a week because I could just sit down and write, 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 write. Wow. So, but but for most of these chapters, it's things that I've been thinking about for at least a decade. So yeah, yeah, a, a yeah. deep well to pull from. Yeah, and pu- pull it all together. Now, would you write for just hours on end? Did you have a time in mind, or do you have a, a word count goal or a chapter goal? Sounds like like, or were you just I'll just do what uh, I can until I'm, my legs are asleep, and then I'll I'll move on. Yeah, I think I yeah, usually I, it was do what you can until you have to go and pick up your girls from school or go and attend to the business you're trying to run or go and see the friend you have to. So <laughs> the life of a of a working mother is often one that's constrained in various ways. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I was just sitting down and, and writing with all the fragments of time that I had. And do you, it's amazing you would write on the couch. I can't imagine laying sitting on the couch and, and writing. I, I got to be at a desk or at a coffee shop, but it didn't matter. Well, at that point, I had an, an entire human being in my abdomen. So That's it was true. about the only comfortable way to speak. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I've never experienced that. Um, no, I don't think it's coming no, your way either, Jeff. No, I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't think so either. <laughs> now, what were some of the biggest challenges while, while writing, other than having the, your lovely human growing inside of you mm. and, and all of the things that, that come along with pregnancy? Um, what were some of the challenges as, as you were writing the book? Mm. I really, really did not want to write a book where I was telling people things that were demonstrably false. Now, this book has a lot of claims in it, many of which are controversial and many of which ones that most of my friends would disagree with me on. And that's fine. Like, I know that I'm writing. <laughs> I know I'm writing things that people would disagree with. I have a real um, horror of Christian apologetics that starts saying things that just wouldn't stand up in court and particularly in the academic world uh, and just don't represent where the state of the academy is or have been discredited or disproved in real sort of verifiable ways. So I think the hardest thing, one of the hardest things about writing the book was knowing that I was steering into a lot of controversial headwinds and that I really wanted to make sure that I was not letting my reader down by saying things that just weren't weren't ultimately true not not I mean it's possible that I'm ultimately completely wrong on many of these questions but that things that I hadn't fact-checked basically so I, I built in as many processes as I could of having 
expert friends review chapters and trying where possible to draw from highly reputable academic sources uh, to take my statistics from non-Christians rather than Christians wherever possible, just to build in some safeguards against doing a Christian echo chamber thing of taking what one Christian says that probably slightly overclaims and then adding your own little overclaim and then, you know, accruing some monstrous um, misleading line of argument. So I think for for me, that's been a big, um, a big worry and, and a big struggle in the process. And, And there were two chapters where I was doing much more basic research as in, they weren't things that I already went, knew what I thought and had sort of things at my fingertips coming in. And the first was, doesn't religion cause violence? And the second was, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? And I felt like, particularly the latter, to write a, a book covering the kinds of questions that this book does and not to address the ways in which Christians have been complicit in slavery and the ways in which the Bible's been invoked to justify slavery, etc. You know, I couldn't write a book without that. I really yeah. wanted it in there. At the same time, I am a white girl from England um, with a you know, different set of cultural starting points than, than even a white American. Uh, I... I'm in the learning process myself in terms of understanding the history of slavery, uh, in terms of understanding the nuances of questions of race in this country. And I feel profoundly like uh, these are incredibly important questions. And I think ultimately very fruitful questions for the gospel. But I think we Christians have, have made a huge mess particularly, you know, well, let's put it this way. I think we white Christians have made a huge mess right. and continue to do so. And so I think I have a, a nervousness. You know, I want to be engaged in these questions. I think it's vital. At the same time, I know that I'm going to be making mistakes. And I've, um, you know, prayed hard against that and, and continuing to try and sort of learn and equip myself. But um, yeah, I think that was a chapter where I, I wanted to say something helpful, but I was probably most worried about saying something ultimately unhelpful somehow. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I, I was just reading this morning, um, in the chapter on how Christianity is actually diverse and doesn't crush diversity. And I loved when you said that the new Testament is actually the most anti-racist document and mm. yeah. the most, you know, anti-racist documents produced in, in history. Yeah, I mean, Christianity is just purely empirically, not whether you believe in Christianity or not, it is the greatest movement for racial, cultural and ethnic diversity in all of history, hands down. And we have lost sight of that. We've lost sight of the fact that diversity is not primarily a sort of secular liberal ethic. It's actually a Christian ethic. And I think we need to lean into that for the sake of obedience to Christ, number one. I think we also need to lean into the sake of the gospel because it totally changes the conversation for my secular liberal friends when they realize that evangelical Christianity is not the religion of white men. Actually, interestingly, atheism is, is kind of the religion of white men. Um, in America, white men are significantly over, overrepresented among atheists. Um, and Christianity is demographically, both in the US and globally, the religion of women of color. Yeah, that's yeah, really striking. And so... 
encouraging. And I, I tweeted out yesterday about your book that, yeah, the sky isn't falling no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, another white man writes a book about the decline of Christianity. It's like, no, it's actually not. Well, this is the irony. The reason, the reason that we Christians and that our secular friends think is because we over-index on one and one secularizing demographic pretty much. Isn't that ironic? Yeah. <laughs> That's why we think it's all falling apart. Yeah. Oh, so good. And so you're, you're and you, you prove all of this and all with great research. Um, so how did you manage all of the research? Were you just using a word document? Were you using Evernote? Obviously there's lots of stuff going here, um, online, uh, other there's websites, books, articles, mm. blogs. Mm. Um, how, how did, what was your system for managing all of your research? That's that question is almost funny to me because I am so I am like profoundly disorganized. I mean, to, to the extent that I, I think a ten-year-old has more organizational skills than I do in some <laughs> in some in some areas. So I don't have a wonderfully organized uh, folder with every reference um, in it. I, it was more as I well a combination of as I wrote. Uh, I would pull things that I had in my mental storehouse and I would look them up and check the reference and check the context and make sure that this wasn't the one study out of 15 that was saying, you know, X and all the other 14 were saying Y thing. So I I fact checked as I went along uh, and I, yeah, my my library of references is effectively my book. (laughs) So you have what I have. Maybe hopefully that's that's encouraging and reassuring in some ways. Uh, I found the Pew um, forum incredibly helpful. The the research that that they put out on a whole range of issues, but particularly in terms of um, religious demographics globally in the U in the US. And then I would also, wherever possible, cite an authority that a non Christian friend would recognise. So. In most instances, I've cited a New York Times article that's sharing this research with us versus a, I don't know, a Christian outlet of, of some sort. Right. Or I've um, you know, cited a book by a, a Christian academic or a non-Christian academic, but so, something where I know there have been significant checks and balances already in place versus, you know, this is just some sort of random speculation by somebody. Yeah, that's good. What 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 what's your hope for the book? I know you have multiple audiences in mind. Um, so with those different audience and and readers in mind, what what do you hope they walk away from your book with? Mm. So I dedicated my book to my best friend who's not a Christian. And what I've started to say to people is that I wrote it for your best friend who's not a Christian. And I what I would love for this book to to be helpful to people in is I would, I would love for people to buy this book, Christians to buy this book, to read it, to hopefully have some of their own questions and, and anxieties addressed and, and their own faith strengthened and emboldened. And then I, I would love for them to buy a copy for a friend who's not a Christian and for it to be an opportunity for them to, to further their witness to that friend. So I, I, I think in my experience most kind of quote apologetics books are actually written to christians yeah and they're basically saying hey jeff when you're talking to your non-christian friend here's what you need to think about and that's really helpful 
But I would rather write to the non-Christian and have the Christian kind of listen in than write to the Christian. And so I'm hoping that my book will be used in that way. Um, I'm hoping that it will develop in Christians a greater appetite for real intellectual engagement and less anxiety around that. I'm hoping that it will expose them and connect them to some um, authorities on various questions, like experts on a whole range of issues who they could continue to, to learn from and be encouraged and inspired by. So I feel like this is this book is is not um it's not about me it's kind of about the all, all the people who I've been able to connect with and and their thinking and research first and foremost so I'm hoping that this will be a gateway drug to uh really diving into some of these questions more and that each chapter as somebody has particular curiosity that each chapter would serve as just a sort of starting point maybe a reading list for them yeah yeah, I love it. And I definitely get that sense as as I was reading the book um, that you are writing. It's it's not you're not bludgeoning people with the apologetics, but definitely speaking to those who would be asking the question and gently offering, hey, here's actually the data. Here's what we see. And I, I love that you're you wrote apologetics. You're contending for the faith without being contentious. And yeah. Yeah, and it's a metaphor that I use at one point in the book, which I don't think you've got to this chapter yet, Jeff, but maybe you'll enjoy it when you do. Uh, have you read Harry Potter? I haven't. I've seen the movies. Ah, I know. Okay. Well, maybe you can, A, you're missing out. B, you should read it with your kids. C, I'll start from where you are, which is just having seen the movies, and that's okay. Perfect. Uh, do you remember the scene where Snape kills Dumbledore? Yes. Yeah, okay. P- pushes him so, down the, the thingamajig, right? They, he falls down. Yeah, well, he kills him with the the killing curse, and then Dumbledore topples off the okay, yeah. uh, astronomy tower and and falls. Yeah, so in in the moment that Snape kills Dumbledore and Harry's witnessing it, it is the final confirmation that Snape is on the dark side. Up until that point, as the reader and in Harry's mind, you've kind of re- nobody likes Severus Snape, but right. there's been this question: Is he secretly on the side of good on Dumbledore's side? And just pretending to be evil, or is he secretly on Voldemort's side, on the side of evil, and pretending to be good? And that question gets answered in this startling way when Snape straight up kills Dumbledore, and, and Dumbledore this is a very moving moment where Dumbledore says, "Severus, please," and Snape kills him. And as a reader, it's completely devastating, but also you at least kind of now have the right to fully hate Severus Snape. Right. And it's not until the end of the series that you realize you've completely misunderstood what was going on there. Because when when Snape's dying, Harry uh, extracts memories from his mind and pours them into the the pensieve, the magical bowl where you can dive into someone else's past. And there we discover that Snape's every action has been driven by his passionate love for Harry's mother and how we, we kind of see his anguish when she's murdered by Voldemort, how he from that moment commits himself to Dumbledore we see Dumbledore telling Snape that he's dying from the slow workings of an irreversible curse and Snape promising to kill Dumbledore when the moment comes. And then we rehear Severus pleas as a plea to kill him, not a plea to spare him. Mm. And as our friends look at Christianity, they see a lot of things that look very much like Severus Snape killing Dumbledore. They, they see these 
really good reasons to think that Christianity is, is both intellectually and morally uh, not good. And yeah. I think that the questions around sexuality are the biggest ones here, but there are others, you know, around slavery and, and racism and anti-intellectual mindset, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I completely understand why they're not interested in Christianity, right? Like, it, right. if I looked at Christianity and I saw racism and homophobia and, um, you know, a lack of willingness to reckon with with facts, I would also not be interested in Christianity. But I think just as with, with Snape killing Dumbledore, when you see more, when you dive into the pensive, as it were, actually the, the reasons that you thought you had for for not considering Christianity become reasons to consider Christianity. Yeah. Man, I need to go read Harry Potter. You do. The movies are pretty good though. Yeah. And the first book, so here's the tricky thing with Harry Potter. You grow up with the series. That was how she, she wrote it. And I started reading the first book and I was like, eh, this is kind of a kid story. It's not that compelling. I started reading something else. And then my my dad, my sister, and my sister-in-law, all of whose opinion on literature I respect, were all like really big into Harry Potter. And I thought, what is going on? <laughs> so I started again. I started reading from the second book, and then I I got pulled in. Um, I don't I don't think J.K. Rowling is brilliant in terms of her just like sentence construction. Um, you know, she's she's not Jane Austen. At the same time, her narratives and characterization are, are brilliant. So I highly recommend. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'll have to do it. Yeah. I, I, wait, as you were talking about, you know, our perspective of, of what Snape did, it reminded me of, I think it was Keller's message at the recent TGC conference mm. how, that there are so many truths that they don't make any sense to us with the, you know, non-born again, unillumined mind. So I think that is profoundly true. However, what I'm pointing to is something a little bit different, which is that when we have more of the actual verifiable data, yes. things look different. So I'm not even talking about, I mean, clearly there are things where until you yield your life to Christ, you're not going to see this for sure. However, the work that I've tried to do in this book is, is almost less in that territory and more in the what could I sit down with a friend who's not a Christian and uh, is willing to look at more right. actual data and say, hey, you know what? Turns out that far from being the religion of of white Westerners, Christianity is the greatest movement for, for di diversity in all of history. And the global church today is the most diverse belief system in the world, hands down, no arguments. You don't need to be born again to see that. Right. right? Yeah. Absolutely. You just need to be willing to look and, and we need to be able to have those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. That's what I love about when when apologetics is done right. It's it's not trying to force people to be born again and to like it's here's the data, here's what is true, and here's what's beautiful about uh, authentic, real Christianity, not the characterizations of Western white uh, male-dominated Christianity, but real Christianity. Yeah, and I, I'm all about, uh, I think people get anxious about the idea of trying to persuade somebody to become a Christian. And I think that anxiety comes both from Christians who, who want to be conscious of the fact that only God can open somebody's eyes, and that is absolutely true. And also from you know, folks who feel like, oh, well, if you're trying to persuade somebody to change their mind on religious questions, that's somehow uh, undermining their... Um, their identity or or 
assaulting their culture or, or whatever it is. I think the scriptures give us real precedent for trying to persuade somebody to change their mind uh, and calling them to come to Christ. Um, I, not because, like I say, not because it's our job to open their eyes. Um, it isn't, but because it is our job to to plead with them, as Paul does, and to give the best reasons that we have. But I also think that ultimately, the greatest respect you can show somebody is recognize that they are too a thinking agent and that they're not just defined by their culture or their background or their current beliefs or their race or their whatever it is, but that they can make their own choices about what they believe. And so trying to persuade somebody to change their mind is fundamentally a sign of respect to them. Yeah. Well, listeners, you, you got to go to Amazon in the show notes and go and order uh, Rebecca's new book, Confronting Christianity. Uh, I'm just you know, maybe a third of the way through and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm encouraged and thinking about people in our lives that, man, this will be have some great conversations and a great resource just for them to read and, and to check out so we can continue talking. Uh, Rebecca, if, if people wanted to follow you on social media, where, where would you tell them to go? You know what's really funny? Uh, Twitter is c- can't handle my full name, literally. <laughs> my, my full name is Rebecca McLaughlin. On Twitter, I've had to be Rebecca McLaugh. <laughs> um, so find me if you can. Um, I I'm on Facebook, but honestly, only with personal friends. So that's not a great place to follow me. I have just started on Instagram only because I recognize that few people under 30 are actually on Twitter and that many people under 30 are in fact on Instagram. But because I'm very words and not very pictures, I don't yet have an awful lot to say on Instagram, (laughs) but I will get there. And my username there is also Rebecca McGlock. Um, And then I have a a very basic website that's RebeccaMcGlockland.org. Perfect. You can subscribe for stuff there. Perfect. I'll put links to all these in the show notes. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you just keep swiping to the bottom of this episode. You'll see the description and then there'll be links to Rebecca's books and uh, Amazon and, and Twitter and all of that good stuff. Well, Rebecca, thanks for, for coming on. Uh, thank you for your book. And I look forward to, to future books from you as well. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs>